Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. This week's Talking Business is brought to you by multi-award-winning law firm McDonald Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution and commercial and property law. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics and bring it all to you every week. This is episode number seven in our series of 2023, and today's date is Friday, March the 17th. First, I'll be talking to Dr. Sanjay Warrior about the business of healthcare during the pandemic, and I'll be talking to EY economist Cheryl Murphy about Australia's GDP and outlook. But now, let's talk to Sanjay Warrior. Sanjay, uh, how has COVID impacted the health sector generally? and more specifically your area? Yeah, like in terms of COVID, we have seen a reduction in breast cancer referrals and generally in the healthcare setting, specifically if we look at varying times, there has been a reduction and then an inc- an increase and then a drop again. So around April last year, when everything was at a head um, and we, we did see associated with Breast screens are slowing down and stopping in New South Wales. Um, 148,000 over two months less people were screening. And as a result of that, there was a reduction in referrals. And these are people who in the, in the community would potentially, we know one in eight women have, or one in seven women have breast cancer. So they still have other things happening to them. And ultimately at that time, they, they weren't presenting. And that was partly because of concerns at that time relating to COVID. What has happened over a period of time is there has been the ability for us as medical people to adapt to COVID. And the first time it happened, no one really knew what to do. And that was probably showcased by varying things such as using initial recommendations were you don't need a face marks when you were, when you were seeing patients. And then things have adapted a long way when it comes to PPE. So we're a lot more now keen to be engaging people with symptoms and also encouraging screening as well. So uh, this would have affected the entire healthcare industry? Yeah, so this is, I I was talking more about breast cancer, but across across the scope, it comes down to 
provision of services, but also any any anyone across the industry would have noticed a reduction in in uh, pe- seeing people. And but it doesn't necessarily mean that people aren't getting sick for other reasons outside of COVID. But does that mean there was a time when people stopped going to their GP and stopped getting specialist checkups? Yeah, I, look, I, I think this is a time that it is important to be, for us as in the healthcare sector, to be extra vigilant about our messaging to patients. And they, they have pulled back and there is a concern that they will potentially end up with other things happening that potentially could be curable and it is about messaging to the public it is about whether it's government whether it's through campaigns there will be across australia and particularly in multicultural cities like sydney and melbourne it's not just the one demographic either it can be across in our area health we've got we've got a lot of culturally linguistic things that we need to target and we look at our screening program we've had to send out when we restarted it there are certain patients just in our area, we had 4,000 less screens and a lot of them are from non-English speaking backgrounds. So we we did a lot of advertising in uh, and calling using telehealth services, but in multiple languages to try and target these groups so that they'd come back and do their potential screens for breast cancer. So I think as a medical profession, we've got an opportunity, we've got an obligation to ensure that people are aware that if they have symptoms, that they should go and seek, seek a specialist opinion. But in the post-COVID era, that means the entire medical industry has to innovate and innovate carefully. Yeah, it's, it's finding that balance. I think not everyone. It, it, it should come from the top. So we we do have we do have bodies um, such as the government. We've got Cancer Institute in New South Wales. In across, we've got breast cancer advocacy groups. When we talk about breast cancer, such as BCNA, which advocates strongly for patients. So it's not just and Cancer Australia. So there are a bunch of people along the breast cancer space who can do that advocating. But it's important that patients are seen. I think when we when it initially happened in April last year, we moved a lot to telehealth, which has its role. But there is also that group of patients that potentially didn't have the support through that through that means. So it's not everything. And and we, we, we have the appropriate PPE to see patients who have symptoms and to make sure that they're appropriately looked after and rationalising those risks with them. So it's just an important, important message to get across that people will still have other things happening to them across the health sector. And it's important that we provide those services as well. The bottom line is a lot of people are very uncomfortable with telehealth and they don't know how to handle it. Yeah, like it's... It, I mean, we, there there are appropriate reasons for it, and it it part of our practice has been adapting, as has been a lot of practices. We we were an early adopter of Zoom and um, setting up online for appropriate people, but then it's just making sure that those that need to be seen are are seen, and those that aren't comfortable in that environment are also appropriately seen as well with appropriate screening and if you look at our hospital the way we've approached it is when people are having surgery they will be tested prior we're currently in the middle of the having cases in Sydney and and appropriately screened relating to symptoms prior to having potential procedures and then in the past we we really struggled with all staff uh, about concerns relating to PPE relating to ability to see patients face to face Whereas with time, what's happened, we've got more comfortable with people, whether it's the surgeon or or the radiographer or 
the theatre staff, they get, they've got used to looking after patients with PPE and assuming people have COVID. So it is important that we deliver the services where we can for appropriate patients face-to-face as well. So what other innovations can you introduce to get more people seeing their doctors? Yeah, I, th- I think from a local perspective, so when I when I talk about my practice, we, we do a lot of messaging online. We send out just to our base. We, we basically are f- phone calls to our patients. We're sending out newsletters to them. We're, we're on um, LinkedIn as well, updating things to them, just so they're aware that if they have symptoms. But on a bigger scale, I think it comes back to messaging with government, BCNA, with, with other organisations to make sure that it's not just about COVID. COVID's very important, but it's important that the group that are having symptoms are seeing their GPs and getting those things checked as well. And this will, this will keep going. So it, it is important that that's not lost in all of this. But over two months last year, we had a significant reduction. And I think it's in that messaging somewhere, we need to make sure that we're not losing sight that if we get delays in diagnosis, we end up with poorer outcomes for patients. But as we enter the fourth year of the pandemic, COVID is far from over. Yeah, it is. I, I do think that generally, we, we when you look back to when it started and how most people are now, they are aware to keep distance. They are wearing masks. Our medical staff are ready and prepared to be able to see people face-to-face as well where appropriate. And it's just getting those messages across, I think, to the broader community that don't, don't forget about doing the things that you need to do to make sure that you, have, you, you live a long life as well. And, and with all those extra bits and pieces with PPE and uh, telehealth, there's no reduction in the medical care. No, I think, I think we shouldn't be seeing a reduction in medical care. And it's a very interesting point because... When, we, when it started, there was a rationalisation about potentially what type of surgery we would do for patients. And that was a reflection of concern relating to the scale of outbreak. And it may have been appropriate at that time, but we quickly changed that. And what, what I mean is there's certain breast cancers where we give chemo first and rather than necessarily operating on. And, and the types of operations sometimes... Um, early in the piece, there was a recommendation to keep things very simple, but leads to a sequelae of outcomes for the patient as well. So it's getting them to, to be seen early, which allows for a better outcome, but it's also giving them the appropriate um, level of care as well. And I, I, I do think that at the moment we are able to do that. Obviously, it's a fluid environment and um, things can change and we will have to adapt depending on resources with time as well. So you, you would expect this would change the medical industry generally? I think we, as, as a group, we are getting more savvy. We know that communication needs to be very effective with our patients and with our, with our groups, whether it's a consumer, the GP. And it is important that, that the health sector is proactive in this to ensure that patients aren't delaying their aren't delaying symptoms that could potentially be um, treatable or curable. Okay, okay. Well, that, that's uh, that's quite fascinating stuff. But yeah, okay. uh, look, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. I appreciate you having us on. Now let's talk to EY economist Cheryl Murphy. Well, Cheryl, tell us about the Australia's uh, GDP figures show we're slowing down. It's 2.7%. And also the RBA interest, uh, introduced uh, interest rate rise for the 10th time. Uh, what's your view about that? 
Yes, um, so the economy is slowing and it is uh, it does seem to be responding, at least in an activity sense, to what's going on um, with interest rates. In other words, um, we can see quite directly in those national accounts that the interest repayments by households have jumped. In fact, they've jumped really dramatically by 85% in the space of a year, in fact, to about $20 billion dollars. And disposable income as a result has actually fallen in the last quarter. So we we can see that the, the household budget is definitely being squeezed by those rate hikes. The Reserve Bank, though, isn't done. And we saw, of course, the 10th successive rate hike. So we saw the 10th successive rate hike from the Reserve Bank. Um, some of those have been 50 basis points, but today, obviously, 25 basis points. And the cash rate has gone from 0.1% to 3.6%. So there's been lots of tightening, but from a very low base, interest repayments are definitely going up. But again, they started pretty low. The Reserve Bank, though, doesn't target income. It doesn't target GDP or consumption or income. It targets inflation, of course, and that's where it's still looking pretty uncomfortable. And that's why the Reserve Bank is intent on continuing to tighten the economy. So how many more rate rises do you see coming? I think we're going to see at least another one, possibly two, maybe even three. The reason I'm being a little hesitant is because the Reserve Bank is using language which suggests that it's not on autopilot. In other words, if the if the inflation numbers started to come down quickly and the RBA was satisfied that they were on track to move back to its 2 to 3% band, then they would probably pause waiting for, I guess, more evidence that the economy was, was fine on that track. I do think, though, that the economy is at risk of producing inflation numbers, which are uncomfortable for some time. It's quite difficult to get inflation down once it goes up. Um, it's quite sticky on the downside, if you like. And when we think about what might go up in terms of prices in future, it's probably things related to services. And services, of course, are produced by people and people are being paid higher wages. And it feels to me like there's still a lot of pressure in the labour market and, and, if anything, pressure for wages to be going up rather than some stabilising and certainly not slowing down. Okay, so uh, you could see the rate rise go up to, say, uh, above 4.1% maybe? Yes, and, and the market at the moment actually is pricing a rate hike around that level. So um, the market, you know, at least in, on, in terms of interest rate futures, is saying the same. Well, the interesting thing was uh, last week we had uh, the GDP numbers. They came out at, at 2.7%, which showed a slowing down the economy. What was your view about that? Yeah, it, it, it definitely is a slowing down. The When we think about 2022, in some ways it was the kind of bounce back year. So it was the COVID lockdowns ended. Um, we still had a lot of stimulus in the system from both monetary policy and fiscal policy. There's certainly, of course, challenges along the way and monetary policy started to be tightened along the way. But 2022, the end of 2021, 2022 was, I guess, the, the that bounce back period. So to some extent, the economy was going to slow down. We knew that. Um, it's even slower, though, when we look at it on GDP per capita basis, which suggests actually that a lot of the growth that we did see, even in that slower number towards the end of last year, was coming from um, new migrants coming into the country. So it's a 
um, it definitely is a slowdown. There's no doubt about it. Consumption slowed down, 0.3% growth in consumption. That's the slowest since the Delta lockdowns at the end of 2000 or the third quarter of 2021. A lot of discretionary type consumption um, being cut, uh, sorry, slowing down rather being cut. And it does seem to be in fairly narrow characters that we, sorry, areas that we saw strength, things such as accommodation cafes, restaurants, which I suspect is getting a little mixed up with the the tourists and students arriving as well. So I'm not sure that's a very clean picture for us. And of course, uh, there was a slowdown in, in uh, purchase of clothing and footwear and furnishing the household equipment. Wasn't that true? Yes. Yeah, so all the, all the goods, you know, all the goods that we were buying through COVID, particularly those to furnish our homes or improve our homes are a bit out of fashion at the moment and renovating your house was so very 2021 it seems um, we've moved on we've spent a lot of money on, on cushions and um, bathroom fittings and tiles we, we're you know back out in the world spending less time at home um, we're probably moving home less as well because clearly the housing market has slowed right down and we've decided we want to be spending our money on services probably to make up for of course all those services and the nice things that we had to sacrifice during COVID. Well, that would suggest, wouldn't it, that uh, the two sectors that would do it really tough now would be retail and uh, real estate. Yes, and you can see very clearly in the national accounts that the real estate sector is the one that's, that seems to be on the uh, falling the fastest right now. So um, the the what we call the gross value add by that sector um, did actually fall in the quarter. It was one of the few industries to experience a decline. Uh, the anything to do with housing, so not just the sort of selling of houses, but the supplying of um, fittings for houses, financing of houses, the building of houses, anything in that realm is definitely slowing down because housing, of course, is one of the first parts of the economy that fuels rate hikes. So with the households pulling back on spending, it would kind of throw through the retail. Yeah, that's right. And um you know, the retail kind of gets mixed up in that story as well. And and again, it's the goods. So it's things that we, uh, you know, the tangible things that we buy that uh, we, we seem either satiated on or have simply um, been put as second place in terms of our preferences as we kind of enjoy more of the going out rather than the, um, the filling our houses with things. Now, now just, just back on the RBA and inflation, you said inflation is going to be tougher to control now. It could be. Um, there's a, a number of reasons for this. Some of them are fairly short term and some of them are quite long term. Some of them are just related to the fact that getting inflation down once it's up is hard because inflationary expectations start to change. So the fact that people see higher prices mean that they start to price in higher prices to their behaviour. So for workers, that means that they ask for higher wages. The unions on their behalf will ask for higher wages to meet the cost of living. From a business's point of view, their input costs are going up and the cost of, therefore, supplying to their customers is becoming higher. And so they're passing on rate hikes. It's difficult to convince people once you're in that situation that the situ- that things will go the other way. And, and therefore, it does tend to sort of take some time to to calm down again. From a longer term perspective, uh, Governor Lowe from the Reserve Bank has told us about some of the the factors that will be difficult for inflation there. Here, of course, we're talking about climate change, the transition to renewable energy, the uh, climate events, even which are 
you know, unfortunately impacting some of our agricultural sectors and causing some problems there. They're affecting road transport. And we do expect to see more of these types of events. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Going forward, you can think about a number of things. Regulatory reforms tend to be getting tighter, not looser. Again, that does tend to impose more of a cost on business. Even consumer standards. So think about the the way that you purchase these days. Is it different from maybe in the 90s when you weren't perhaps so aware of the fact that your cotton was coming from somewhere that you didn't particularly support their methods? So you might be more willing to pay higher prices because you have a sort of a, a more ethical overlay on what you're doing in terms of your purchasing. So there's all sorts of things that are going on, which I think mean that prices are more likely to sort of veer to the high side than the low side in the near future. The other one I should mention is, of course, globalization, which for a period there caused downward pressure on prices um, simply because, I guess, labor markets were more global. Companies could seek the lowest wages. Um, they could seek the lowest input costs across the world. Now, we've seen a number of ways that that started to tighten up, particularly because of tensions um, between, say, the U.S. and China, the way the U.S. is trying to nationalise production, all these things inevitably means it costs more to um, to buy the inputs for business. Well, Cheryl, that would suggest that uh, we're a long way off from the RBA Richmond's target band of 2%. I think so. And, um, you know, I've definitely been on the side of being more worried about inflation than less. In other words, I think it's it's probably going to hang around and, and and torment us for a while yet. And it doesn't necessarily mean I think inflation is going to get higher, but the rate of price growth will still go up and it will go up at a rate which is way too high for the Reserve Bank to be comfortable with. And therefore, they will have to continue the pressure on on uh, on prices with, with higher rates until the point, of course, that that becomes uh, either uh, a sort of untenable because they, they're simply kind of crushing the economy too much or they actually are successful and prices do start to fall because there's heat, that the heat comes out of the economy. Well, Cheryl, that's been fascinating stuff. And thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Liam. Need legal information or legal advice? Today's podcast is brought to you by multi-award winning law firm, McDonald Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution and commercial and property law. For a free consultation on your legal matter, McDonald Legal can be reached on 3 9070-1107 or by visiting the website www.mcdonaldlegal.com.au So what's happening in the news? 
Well, China's efforts to ramp up lithium extractions could see it accounting for nearly a third of the world's supply by the middle of its decade. According to UBSAG, the bank expects Chinese-controlled mines, including projects in Africa, to raise output by 705,000 tonnes by 2025, from 194,000 tonnes in 2022. That would lift China's share of mineral critical to electric vehicle batteries to 32% of global supply, from 24% last year. The race to secure lithium is playing out at the highest levels, with nations including the US prioritising access to the materials necessary for making batteries as the world turns away from fossil fuels. China's needs are particularly acute because it is home to the world's biggest market for new electric cars. An oil giant Saudi Aramco has reported earnings of US $161 billion, that's Aussie $244 billion, last year, claiming the highest ever recorded annual profit by a publicly listed company and drawing immediate criticism from activists. The monster profit by the firm, known formally as a Saudi Arabian oil company, came off the back of energy prices rising after Russia launched its war on Ukraine in February 2022, with sanctions limiting the sale of Moscow's oil and natural gas in Western markets. The profit equates to $668 million a day. Aramco also hopes to increase its production to take advantage of market demand as China re-enters the global market after lifting its coronavirus restrictions. That could raise the billions needed to pay for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's plans to develop futuristic cityscapes to pivot Saudi Arabia away from oil. However, those plans come despite growing international concerns over the burning of fossil fuels, accelerating climate change. Meanwhile, higher energy prices already have strained relations between Riyadh and Washington, as well as driven up inflation worldwide. And the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis on Friday, and the second largest bank failure in US history, has roiled global markets and left billions of dollars belonging to companies investors stranded. The collapse of three US banks since Friday has spooked investors and customers, even in the face of policymakers introducing measures to protect depositors and taking steps to bolster liquidity and shore up the banking system. How did it happen? The seeds of the problem were sown when SVP invested heavily in long-dated US government bonds, including those backed by mortgages. These were, for all intents and purposes, as safe as houses. But bonds have an inverse relationship with interest rates. When rates rise, bond prices fall. So when the Federal Reserve started to hike rates more rapidly than markets expected to combat inflation, SVB's bond portfolio lost significant value. A crucial lender to US technology startups, the bank came under pressure as Silicon Valley funding dried up, the result of, the, of an economic slowdown and rapidly rising interest rates. The crisis is beginning to spread around the world. Startup founders in California's Bay Area are panicking about access to money and paying employees. Fears of contagion have reached Canada, India and China. In the UK, SVB's unit is set to be declared insolvent, has already ceased trading and is no longer taking new customers. On Saturday, the leaders of roughly 180 tech companies sent a letter calling on UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt to intervene. SVP also provided loans, debt and other banking services to a spate of startups with operations in Australia, which will have ripple effects in this market as some seek out other funding options or have their accounts frozen. This means Australia's big tech investors have been caught up in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the second biggest bank failure in US history, after emerged dozens of local startups with money tied to the financier through the nation's major venture capital funds. Australia's largest venture capital firms, Blackbird, along with Airtree, SquarePeg and Folklore, confirmed they hold exposure to the collapsed lender in what's being labelled a potential extinction-level event that could set startups back a decade. Canva, one of the country's highest-profile technology groups, has emerged among a raft of Australian firms struggling to recoup money deposited with Silicon Valley Bank as local venture capital funds reassure investors they can plug funding holes in their portfolio companies. 
SVP made a concerted push to expand its client base in Australia in the past two years, attracting a number of companies to its services, including Crimson Education, an educational platform, Morse Micro, a local semiconductor maker, and the BHP-backed mind sensor, PlotLogic. The SVP collapse could therefore have ramifications for the jobs market, the economy, and lenders here that also bank companies had relationships with SVB. An analyst at Goldman Sachs on Sunday said it no longer expects the Federal Reserve to hike interest rates later this month after federal regulators move to swiftly shield the US banking system from the crisis triggered by the rapid collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. In an analyst note, Goldman Sachs chief economist Jan Hatzius pointed to the recent stress in the banking system as a reason behind the no-rate hike forecast. Last week, economists and traders had signalled they were expecting a hike of 50 basis points following the Fed's meeting later this month. The note added, there is now considerable uncertainty about the path beyond March, adding that it expects hikes of 25 basis points in May, June and July, and a terminal rate of 525 to 5.50%. Hatsius and his team had previously forecast the Fed's rate hikes will reach a top level of 5.75%. An American Nasdaq-listed cybersecurity giant, Rapid7, fears too few educational opportunities and a lack of private public-private sector partnerships could dramatically undermine Australia's ambitions to be a world leader in cybersecurity. Rapid7 Global Chief Scientist and Head of Research Raj Samani, who has assisted multiple law enforcement agencies on cybercrime cases and is a special advisor to the European Cybercrime Centre in The Hague, said the firm was prepared to invest significantly in cybersecurity education in Australia. In his first visit to Australia last week, Mr Raj attended several roundtable meetings with leading Australian companies who revealed their concerns about a lack of training opportunities to build a significant local workforce to fight cybercrime. Rapid7's Mr Samani said his firm had recently partnered with the University of South Florida in North America on an education program to allow students in the US to come through and work on real data and projects. He said he would be open to striking similar partnerships in Australia. OSCyber, the Australian Cyber Security Growth Network, has estimated the shortage of local cyber security workers could reach 18,000 roles in Australia in the next decade. And Treasury may block tax advisory firms from winning major government contracts if they do not have robust processes in place to curb misconduct in the wake of the PwC tax leak scandal, a move that would put at risk big four consulting firm work for the Commonwealth worth more than $1 billion annually. The warning comes as Treasury, the Tax Office and the Board of Taxation all flagged to Treasurer Jim Chalmers they're planning to overhaul their procedures around confidential consultations with the private sector when developing policy. In a letter to Treasurer Jim Chalmers on February the 10th, Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy wrote the department was working with the tax office to prepare advice for the government on further options to penalise tax advisory firms which do not put in place appropriate government arrangements to curb misconduct. On Thursday, the Senate approved a push by Green Senator Pocock to establish an inquiry by the Finance and Public Administration Committee into unethical behaviour by consultants engaged for government work. It was triggered by revelations that PwC's former head of international tax, Peter Collins, was registered by the Tax Practitioners Board after he leaked confidential government documents which were shared with up to 30 PwC partners and staff as well as clients. And Australia will boost its annual defence spending by an average of 0.15% of GDP annually for 30 years to cover the acquisition, construction and operation of nuclear-powered submarines under the AUKUS Pact, bringing the total cost to between $268 billion and $368 billion. However, the bulk of the cost will largely be borne by future governments. Numbers released on Tuesday to coincide with the official announcement show AUKUS will cost the budget $9 billion over the next four years and up to $58 billion over the next decade, with 
creation of 20,000 jobs, mainly in South Australia and Western Australia. However, the initial $9 billion cost over the forward estimates will be fully offset by savings elsewhere in defence. This includes $6 billion that would have been spent on the now abandoned French attack class submarines. The other $3 billion saving will be detailed in the defence white paper to be released in April. Similarly, the $50 to $58 billion medium-term cost will be reduced by $24 billion that will not be spent on the French subs. This takes a total cost over the first 10 years to $26 billion to $34 billion. Details of the AUKUS program launched in San Diego, California on Tuesday morning, AST by the leaders of Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom, confirm Australia's acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines will be stepped up in three phases, culminating in the domestic production of eight vessels starting in 2042. Starting this year, there will be increased visits of US submarines and from 2026, British submarines. From 2027, they will be stationed in Australia as part of a rotation. The second step starts in 2033 when Australia will acquire the first of three second-hand Virginia-class submarines to cover the capability gap. The next will be bought in 2036 and the one after that in 2039. Up to five could be purchased if need be. Without these subs, Australia would have had to rely on the ailing Collins-class submarines until the 2040s. And the Japanese government will tip in $2.35 billion towards a clean hydrogen gas project designed to make Victoria's Gippsland region the centre of the world's first liquefied hydrogen supply chain. Some of Japan's largest industrial conglomerates are spearheading the hydrogen energy supply chain project, which aims to convert brown coal from AGL's Loyang mine into hydrogen, which would then be liquefied and shipped to Japan. Carbon capture and storage technology would be used to store the carbon emissions in depleted oil and gas reservoirs in the bra- beneath Bath Strait. The funding from Gre- Japan's Green Innovation Fund comes as the project enters a commercial demonstration phase following a pilot project la- last year that delivered liquid hydrogen to the port of Kobe in Japan. As part of the funding deal, a joint venture between one of Japan's largest utility companies, J-Power, and trading house Sumitomo Corporation has been selected to produce the hydrogen via coal gasification. Kawasaki Heavy Industries Iwatami Corporation a part of the Japan Suso Energy JSE consortium that will oversee the liquefaction, loading and transportation process. And the world's biggest offshore wind power developer has ambitions to develop up to 5 gigawatts of generation capacity by aggressive entry plans into the nascent sector in Australia and may also consider buying a stake in the country's most advanced offshore venture. Mads Nipper, chief executive of Denmark's Orsted, said the firm is extremely excited about the potential in Australia given the federal government's commitment to 2030 emissions reduction targets and net zero by 2050 and the goals set by the Victorian state government for offshore wind. He said Australia's combination of world-class wind resources, relatively shallow water depths of Victoria and its stable regulatory framework makes it a really attractive market for us. Listed on Nasdaq Copenhagen with a market value of 244.7 billion Danish kroner, that's 52.9 billion Aussie dollars, Orsted has transformed itself from an oil, gas and power, coal-powered producer, previously named Dong Energy, to now producing more than 90% of its energy from renewables. Orsted, which has developed more than twice as much offshore wind capacity than its nearest rival, has sounded out potential acquisitions in renewables in Australia. It was an early participant in the auction process for CWP Renewables, a large portfolio of wind and solar assets that was eventually bought by Andrew Forrest Squadron Energy for $4 billion plus. But Mr Nipper said that while Allstead keeps its eyes wide open on acquisition, its main focus in Australia was on developing its own offshore capacity from scratch. And Lauren Cranston, the daughter of a former Deputy Commissioner of the ATO, Michael Cranston, has been found guilty of a role in a $105 million tax fraud conspiracy. Both Lauren Cranston and her brother Adam were among five people to face a trial in the New South Wales Supreme Court, which began last April. The court heard allegations of a long-running scam in which the accused parties ripped off the government by keeping more than $100 million in GST and pay-as-you-go tax. 
It was alleged a legitimate payroll company called Plutus Payroll was used to collect gross wages from employers before money that should have gone to the ATO was siphoned off into second-tier companies to distance the defendants from the fraud. It was a crown case that random, unconnected and sometimes vulnerable parties were installed as directors of these companies. Last week, the jury found Adam Cranston and co-accused Dev Menon and Jason Onley guilty of conspiring to dishonestly cause a loss to the Commonwealth and conspiring to deal with the proceeds of crime. And the corporate watchdog is investigating several superannuation funds for greenwashing under consumer protection laws and suspects these matters will result in court action. Danielle Press, Commissioner of the Australian Securities Investments Commission, said members of the public were reporting significant misconduct in this space and that the compulsory nature of super meant it was taking an especially tough stance. Her comments follow ASIC launching a landmark greenwashing case against retail superannuation giant Mercer, alleging it misled members of its Sustainable Plus Fund by claiming it excluded investments in companies involving carbon-intensive fossil fuels, alcohol production and gambling. But the fund was actually invested in nearly 50 oil, coal, beer and wine and gambling companies, ASIC said, including AGL, BHP, Whitehaven Coal, Treasury Wine Estates, Crown Resorts and Tapcorp. Some funds, such as SUNY Super, argue that their investments in fossil fuel companies still align with sustainability goals, as the sheer size of their holdings give them influence over how these entities drive the energy transition. But Ms Press said any funds making such claims needed to be able to back that up with evidence of how they were wielding that influence and whether it was effective. And a $5.8 billion ethical investment fund in Australia sold all its shares in Lendlease Group, one of the country's biggest property developers, saying a planned housing project in south-west Sydney threatens a vulnerable koala colony. Australian Ethicals said the sales among the first to be made on the grounds of impact on endangered species. The fund, which manages $8.7 billion assets, sold Lendley's stock worth $11 million, it said on Monday. The excerpt forms part of a growing policy shift among professional money managers. Environmental, social and governance-focused investments worldwide are set to almost double to $34 trillion in 2026 from 2021 levels, according to PwC. A mining giant, Rio Tinto, is muscling itself into a position of global dominance in copper production, a key base metal in the world's transition to green energy, as it ramps up output from its enormous Oyu Tolgoi copper mine in Mongolia's remote Gobi Desert. The Anglo-Australian miner is pressing ahead with underground extraction, sinking kilometre-deep shafts into the Mongolian desert to mine the huge amounts of copper needed to satisfy demand for green energy technologies as nations rush to decarbonise their economies. After settling its long-running differences with the Mongolian government, the miner on Monday began increasing production of copper concentrate from underground ore bodies at Oyu Tolgoi, a milestone that will eventually reach peak production of a critical mineral with 500,000 tonnes a year, making it one of the world's largest copper mines. Rio has been extracting gold and copper from the mine's open-cut operations since 2012, but is now proceeding with a more technically challenging task of extracting the mineral from deep underground, unlocking the most valuable part of the mine. Rio's underground prospect has been beset by a series of long delays and cost blowouts since construction began in 2019, compounding a long-running dispute with the Mongolian government that ended last year when Rio waived US $2.4 billion, that's $3.6 billion Aussie, in debt owed by the government. The mine's expansion was first anticipated to cost US $5.3 billion, but is now forecast US $6.92 billion. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Ian McCadden, the CEO of Capsify, one of Australia's leading software providers for enterprise architecture and innovation. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. 
This show is brought to you by multi-award-winning law firm McDonald Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution in commercial and property law. For a free consultation on your legal matter, McDonald Legal can be reached on 03-9070-1107 or by visiting the website www.mcdonaldlegal.com.au. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 